All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be beginning at verse 18. If you've got your Bible with you, please stand while we read God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 21. <clears throat> Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. Even as we just read these four verses out loud, the truth is amazing. And I pray, Lord, that you would have, help us to fathom it, help us to grasp it, help us to appreciate it this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open to your spirit taking your living word and applying it to us. So be our teacher. We ask in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, together. Amen. Well, biographies and autobiographies, the biographies that are written by the people themselves, are big business, if you didn't know. Whether it's a celebrity tell-all or a a famous historical figure that, that has been able to been able to assemble diary entries from them and, and reconstruct uh, uh, first-person stories or commentaries, or a shocking memoir told by a former heroin addict. We eat them up. In fact, rarely a week goes by that at least one or two don't appear on the top 10 bestseller list in either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Many are also made into streaming series or big budget movies or, or even Broadway plays, Hamilton, for instance. So why is this? What is our fascination with biographies? I think we like the before and after. We want to know how so-and-so got to their place of celebrity or success or, or how they survived some kind of crazy upbringing. All of it's some variation of what has been called the rags-to-riches story, the journey from all odds against this individual to some amazing accomplishment of some kind worthy of a published biography. And yet, in light of what we have just read together just a few moments ago, these four verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I sincerely mean this, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ sitting here in this room this morning, if he is without a doubt your Savior, there is no more moving biography on earth than yours. Now, I've told you in the past many times, I read a lot. So over the course of my life, I've read a lot of biographies. 
I've read the story of Walt Disney. I've, I've read the story of the Wright brothers. I've read the true story of Butch Cassidy. <laughs> They're all amazing stories. They're well-written stories. There's, there's amazing things you find out about these people, but they're also very tragic in many ways, very empty in many ways, sometimes coming to the end of their lives, having more questions. And I can tell you, in reading through those biographies and many, many others like them of past presidents or, or generals or whoever it may be, historical figures, none of them brought tears to my eyes. But the story of grace, of, of our God rescuing an aimless rebel like me and like you, never fails to stir the heart. And bring deep feelings of, of joy and, and even tears. Why? Why does this all resonate at such a deeper, more profound level? I think it's because of what he does for us. We just read it together in 18 through 21. It's really beyond our comprehension it defies all of the formulas. It turns all conventional expectations upside down. I was in an Oregon City hardware store earlier this week. I won't name it. And I was having a key made. So a guy came up to, to help me right away. I needed some assistance with it because I had actually had a key made there earlier and did the did the uh, self-service kiosk, and the key, when I got home, looked nothing like the actual house key. So I said, I need some help here. I need you to do it. I know you're going to default to the self-service machine, but I need you to help me. And he goes, oh, great. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. And so he put the key in and, and got it in there and clamped it down. And he said, I used to really shake, and it was very, very difficult. I don't even know if I'd been able to put a key into this machine. But I don't shake anymore. And I said, okay, well, what's all that about? And he started to tell me for the next half hour all about his life and the journey that he had taken. He told me about the murder of his three-year-old son. He told me about his, his descent into severe alcoholism and drug addiction and losing his family, the rest of his family, and his wife. And he said, but I don't shake anymore. And the reason I don't shake anymore, and he pointed a finger up, he says, is because of Jesus. He said, Jesus took it all away. Didn't take the pain away, but gave me a brand new life. I'm giving you the short version. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I forgot about the key. You know, it's like, why was I here? Oh, yeah, I was having that, can I have that key back, you know? And, and uh, but it was more like, hand me a tissue. I mean, this guy's story was incredible. Now, there's a biography. Nobody else knows anything about it. You're not going to find it at Barnes & Noble. I doubt that it's available on Amazon. But it's his story, his biography, written not by a human author, not even an autobiography necessarily written by him, is it? But written by a gracious God 
who intervene in this man's life and changed him from the inside out. That's what I'm talking about here this morning. That's the difference. That's what our God does. Only God can work that way. Think about it. This guy's not a celebrity. I don't think anybody in this room here is a celebrity. You might think you are at times. You're not. I don't think anybody in this room is going to write a best-selling book. I doubt any of you are going to have your own radio show or your own TV series. I doubt anybody in this room is going to become a billionaire. Maybe, but I doubt it. And yet God has reached out to each one of us in grace in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he works. God's heart moves that way toward the sinner, the world, and its ruthless system has beat up and many times totally discarded. And I believe Peter is saying to us in this section in chapter 1, remember, it's a call, call to be holy. It's a call to live different. It's a call to embrace the fact that God has separated you. He has made you something distinct. He has made you different, and he wants you to live according to your identity, to live in different. Peter is saying to us in these four verses, I believe, remember this, believer. Be holy, be different, because you are different. Jesus has turned your biography into an epic story of grace-fueled transformation. So let's look at this, at this moving biography, this moving story today that he presents to us in these four verses. We'll begin with part one, as many biographies do. They have a part one and then about halfway through the biography, they'll have a part two, sometimes additional parts, but usually it's part one is the before picture, right? Part two will be the after picture. So this is where I came from. This is where I ended up. So for you and I in Christ, we begin with part one. We begin with what we were, the rags of the rags to riches story, the before picture. We were hopeless, every one of us. We were helpless, every one of us. And he tells us that and he describes that in language that we see here in this first verse. So as we look at verse 18 again, it's an extension of what we looked at last Sunday. I'll read verse 17 for the context. And if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So number one in this part one section of our biography, what we were is we were enslaved. We were enslaved. Now, we don't like that. Enslaved is not a good word to use very often today. But I want to tell you, we're not in a woke facility here. So this is actually a very biblical word. We were not enslaved. 
Actually, the scriptures say you have, he's broken the bonds of slavery and now you are enslaved to God in Romans chapter 6. But let's look at the past here. What is this part of the before picture? Now, it begins, as we said, verse 18, with a little phrase, knowing that. That's like saying, well, you know this already. Peter's talking to his first century audience. He's talking to us across the ages under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you already know that this is absolutely true, these things to follow, because you've already experienced it. The grammar here is very personal, meaning each one of these individuals, many that Peter would know by name, he would know by recognition, he would know by family and all the relationships. He's saying, you, you already know this. You already know what? He uses the term redeemed, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Well, what does that term redeemed mean? It's one of those Christian terms that we kind of toss around and throw out, redemption, redeemed, uh, redeem, the, the basic word. What does it mean? Literally in the Greek language, it means to purchase, to buy out, to release by paying a ransom price. There's where we get the connection to slavery. Slavery was a, was a day-to-day -day reality in the first century. So Peter's audience would totally understand what he was talking about when he used the term redeemed or redemption to buy out of the slave market. There were millions and millions of slaves in the Roman world then. That certainly means then it presupposes something because he says you were not redeemed. It puts you and I into that category. He's speaking to each one of us who knows Christ now and he's saying you were not redeemed, meaning then what? You were redeemed. So he's saying you're in that category. Well, what category is that? If you were redeemed then, that means you were in the slave market. You were not free. You were trapped. You were in bondage. You were shackled without any possible way to bring about your own release. Does everybody understand this? That's who you were before Christ. That's a reality. It's not a thing we can choose and say, well, that may be true of you, but I was never enslaved. No, he's telling you, you know this already. This is God's reality. If you know Christ, you had a before picture and you were enslaved. And to understand what it means to be enslaved, we have to get the picture of no way out on our own. You could not buy your own way out of being a slave. You could not somehow saw the shackles off of you and break out. The idea is a picture of complete and total bondage. How many of you followed the story of the, that crazy story in Pakistan, what happened this last Tuesday? With the six children and the two adults that were trapped in a tilted cable car for 12 hours, 1,150 feet above a canyon. Can you even imagine? I mean, I saw some of the photographs from that. I read the story. There's testimonies of the, the people that were rescued afterwards. You talk about a hopeless picture. Eight people trapped in a tilted cable car because one of the lines had broken 
over a thousand feet above a canyon. They're just dangling there. No food, no water, no medicine. One of the kids on board was going to a doctor because he had a heart issue. He passed out for three hours. There's nothing they could do. Helicopter came in, tried to rescue him, was able to get two kids out, but it was so traumatic for everybody on that tram that they had to abandon it, and it also got dark because when the helicopter got close enough that they could actually get to the car, the stranded car, what do you think happened to it? What do helicopters do with their blades? Yeah. Yeah, things started going wildly back and forth. And they, everybody in the car was screaming. And they said, you have to stop. The kids that were left were absolutely beside themselves. So how did they finally get rescued? It was the, all the locals. The local people put together some kind of a chain. They actually made a second cable car to go out there. They went out on this wire over a thousand feet above a canyon and rescued the remaining people. Can you imagine how you would have felt in that car though? Not only trapped in the car, but it's on an angle. 16 hours? Could they have done anything for themselves? I mean, think about the picture. That's what got me. There is absolutely zero that they could have done to hasten their own release. Absolutely zero. You and I spiritually were in that cable car. That's what our situation was like spiritually. Every one of us. Nobody's got an inside track. Nobody has, a, has an escape clause here. Nobody in this room has any fine print. That's exactly where we were. And you have to understand that to fully understand the biblical meaning of redemption. It means redemption when you cannot rescue yourself. You're absolutely hopeless and helpless. And that's what scripture is talking about here. So that's part of our before picture. The second part that Peter addresses is we were empty. So we were enslaved, number one, no hope of rescue, and we were empty. He says, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Futile way of life, or as the NIV and NLT uh, translate that, empty. It literally means vain or useless or worthless. Other parts of scripture use this same terminology. Ephesians chapter 4 uses the exact same Greek word, translating it futility, that also regarding it as part of our past if we know Jesus Christ. Also saying Every single person before they came to know Jesus Christ was living a life of futility. Paul also uses it there. The term attaches it to the mind and the futility of your thinking. You say, wait a minute, the futility of your thinking? Well, well what does that mean? If you look at how it's translated, that means my thinking was vain, my thinking was useless, my, my thinking was worthless. That's what he's telling us. Now, we weren't all stereotypical, necessarily bad people, okay? Understand that. I mean, I don't know that anybody in this room is a murderer, maybe. 
I don't know if somebody had a super bad anger problem or a, a compulsive liar in this room, maybe. You may have been in jail for a number of years. You may have did some other despicable things. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and, and tell us about it. But you probably weren't a stereotypical bad person. And it's easy for us to kind of get that image in our head and almost kind of excuse ourselves. Like we were on some separate salvation track. Well, we were already somewhat good, so we were on this, this separate escalator to grace on this side, where all those other bad people, those drug addicts and, and all of those people and murderers, and, you know, they're, they're in a separate category. They're in a real dark category over here. Does it say that anywhere in Scripture? I think God levels everything. Everywhere in Scripture we read, no, 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 we were, we were all in the same place. Because what we need to understand is it's, there's no leveling of, of bad things that we do. There's not things like, oh, well, that's really bad and that's not so bad. It's all bad. It's just all bad. Remember what James said, you violate one of the laws of God and you're guilty of all of the laws of God. Do we understand that? Do we really? I mean... Doctrinally, yes. Personally, no. Yes, that's what God said. So we're in this before position of, of being empty. And, and Peter is adding this lifestyle inherited from your forefathers. He's talking about that, that whole pharisaical religious background. There was absolutely nothing. It's even like a lot of churchy stuff today. It's just a bunch of stuff. Well, I've always been a Christian. I've always gone to church. I, I gave my life to Christ, you know, 20 times at vacation Bible school. And, and, you know, I went to Sunday school and I did all these different things. That's just all stuff. And he's saying that's just as futile if you didn't come to Christ. You might have come to church. You might have come to religion. You might have surrounded yourself with all kinds of Christian stuff. But that doesn't matter. In the end, what's that going to mean? It's just stuff. So he's saying this was part of the before life. Now, there's a part two to this biography. And the part two to this biography, since we're in a, a hopeless and a helpless position, then the end of the story would be pretty tragic if it ended right there. If that was it, the end. No more, no installment, no second volume. But there is a second part. And the second part is not what we were, but now what he did. What he did. Now, it's important for us to understand then that we were futile in our thinking. Remember, we didn't find him. He found us. Now, some people don't like that. They said, no, I, I researched and I went on a track and I discovered God. And, and, you know, it's a whole process of me just intellectually coming to know who God was. No, that's not true at all. You didn't have the capacity spiritually to find God. He found you. That's the way that it works. 
In his amazing love, he reached out by the power of his Holy Spirit to a rebel. Even if that rebel was involved in religion, you were still a rebel. And by his marvelous grace, he reached out to us first. He initiated the relationship with us. He initiated our salvation. And there's three ways that this happened here in these verses that Peter has given us this morning. Number one, he purchased. So we go back to redemption and we look at that one more time and it says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So number one, he purchased, he redeemed, he bought us out of the slave market of sin. Now he wants us to understand he bought us, but he didn't buy us with money. He didn't buy us with precious metals or land deeds or stock shares. He bought us with the absolute only thing, there's only one thing that could set us free, the precious blood of the perfect lamb. We were just singing about it a few moments ago. The precious blood of the perfect lamb. That's what he describes here in scripture. Verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's the only thing that could set us free. That's why we sing about it. That's why we talk about it. Sometimes people are offended. Today, many newer generation Christians don't understand the blood because they've never, they've never, nobody talks about it anymore and they're offended by it. Shed blood, what on earth? That's kind of a graphic picture. Yeah, it is. So is the darkness of your sin. So is hell. It's very graphic, but it's real. It's true. Why did we need him to shed his blood? Because the law condemned us. You understand that? The law condemned us. We read about in Romans chapter 3 these words, and I want you to, to listen carefully. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's saying a lot there, isn't he? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I know that I've transgressed because I have the law and I have violated the commandments. Now I know you'll talk to people and they'll say, I'm a pretty good person. I, I keep most of the 10 commandments. Boom, red flag always goes up. What do you mean? You just violated one right there. We have violated the law of God. I made reference to James a few moments ago. If we even violate one part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. That's how God's system works. Perfection. He's looking for 100%, not 99, not 90, not 85. God doesn't grade on a curve. He has a standard. That standard is his law. Every one of us in this room has violated that standard. And Romans chapter 3 says, your mouth is shut up. That's what it says, right? 
Your mouth is closed. In other words, you have no defense. Well, wait a minute. I, hmm? Nothing. You are accountable to the law. It says you're accountable to God and his law. Whether you like it or not, you are. And so if you violated any part of the law of God, if you were mean to somebody this morning, you're guilty. You're going to hell based upon your violation of the law of God. If on your way to church, you, you saw your neighbor's brand new Corvette and you thought, man, I deserve that, not him. Boom, you're going to hell. And you know what? It doesn't matter what you do. You can do 200 nice things to somehow humanly atone for that one mean thing. Not going to make a bit of difference. Because you're trying to do those nice things as a violation of the law. That's a form of idolatry. Let's just face it. We're, we're all guilty. So what was necessary if we're all guilty? The one sacrifice that was perfect. The unblemished, perfect lamb. And the life was in the blood, and the life was shed on our behalf. In fact, we read this amazing verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, says it in a compact way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took on all of our guilt, all of our sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That was our only way out. Through him. Do you understand that? All your sin was placed upon him. The guilt of your sin was placed upon someone who never did anything wrong. He was sinless. You know, there's a lot of people today, they've done surveys that don't even understand that Christ was sinless. They're like, no, he sinned. There's a whole generation growing up not even realizing that Christ never sinned. How can you understand the gospel and the power of his shed blood if you don't understand that he was the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God? Right? Do we understand? But this is how he intervened on our behalf. See, we don't have to do anything except accept it, believe it. So that's what he did. He purchased. And secondly, he planned. If you look at verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. He was foreknown. What on earth does that mean? What this means is that the cross wasn't just a reaction from God. He didn't see us stumbling around down here and making a mess of our lives and think, gosh, I better come up with something. How about the cross? This was all part of an eternity past cre creation plan down to the last significant detail. And that last significant detail is for the sake of you. You being a personal pronoun, you applying to everybody in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it for the sake of you, for the sake of, for the benefit of you. Is that an amazing thing? Before the 
the beginning of the Bible, God already had a plan in his mind, already had your name in his mind for the sake of you. And thirdly, he preserves. Look at verse 21 again, the last verse here in this section. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Our faith and hope aren't in a system. Our faith and hope aren't in a church. Our faith and hope aren't in our own actions. Our faith and our hope are in God. Why is that so important to understand? Because we are secure in him. Nothing else in life is like that. All of the different things that we depend on and look to for our happiness and, and our contentment and our pleasure are all things that can fade away. All things that can change in an instant. Money, our health, our jobs, our, our national stability, current circumstances. They're all subject to change. But he has given us, as he told us earlier in this chapter, a living hope by faith. And no one can touch it. He preserves us. He, he carries us through to glory. And he did this all for our sake. This is your biography. This is your story if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater story on earth. And your story doesn't have to be, you know, I, I was rescued from, you know, the pit and, and I was a drug addict and I was a, I, you know, I was a thief and I was in prison and, and, you know, all of these different things. Your story is your story because it highlights the amazing grace of God. He reached out to you. He touched your life, and your story then becomes epic. You're the only thing that's going to last. All of these celebrity tell-alls and everything, if they don't know Jesus Christ, that's it. That's all they get. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, your story doesn't end even when you pass from this earth. It really just begins and we just went through the book of Revelation for over two years. And does that just blow your mind? That's what we're going to experience. Your story, your biography, because of his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this truth this morning. That you are indeed the great story maker as you touch lives one after another with your grace and change us and transform us to live for you. We thank you for that. Help us to embrace that and be confident in our difference and living in holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.